Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Road to Ivy Madness. Boy, what a wild week in the Ivy. On the med side, crazy swings from Friday night to Saturday night. I have five teams within one game of first. It is so tight. On the women's side, Princeton stays undefeated, but Penn, Yale, Harvard, and Columbia are separated by a game and a half from second to fifth. So plenty still to figure out over the final three weeks of the season, and that includes back-to-backs for every team in the league this weekend that we look forward to covering, talking about, and breaking down as this show goes along. I'm Bill Spaulding, joined as always by former Princeton Tiger Noah Savage and former Cornell Big Red Megan Perry. Coming up on the show, we'll look back to that crazy weekend last weekend and we'll preview some of the biggest games this week. Reminder that you can subscribe to The Road to Ivy Madness wherever you get your podcast. New episode every Wednesday over the course of Ivy basketball season all the way through Ivy Madness and the NCAA tournament. All right, Noah, Megan, let's hear headlines. Uh, Noah, lead us off. You know, just when you think you have this league figured out, I think the, the headline was everybody thought Yale was dominating this league and then they go down to Penn and all of a sudden Penn showing great moxie, showing great courage and bounce back from a loss against Brown and one, you you just can't sleep on any team in this league. And right when you think there's one dominant team, wait a second, hold on. All right. Now, Megan, your headline. My headline continues to be the dominance of Princeton. I'm going to add in a sleeper team. Um, I want to talk about Columbia Lions and what they're doing. They're surging right now. And I'm really impressed with their play. Well, coming up, Noah will be with me to break down men's basketball. Megan will be back in just a bit to break down the women's basketball scene. With just a few weeks left in the Ivy season, getting close to Ivy Madness, things are really getting good. Stay with us here as the road to Ivy Madness continues. All right, Noah Savage with me, Bill Spaulding, as we dive into a wild week in Ivy men's basketball. Uh, Split road trips from Yale and Brown, making the tough trips to Princeton and Penn. Let's start with Yale. I mean, Noah, on Friday night, Yale could not have looked better. They looked like they were primed to start running away with the league as they crushed Princeton 88-64. Yeah, I mean, defensively, we know Brown, I mean, Yale, rather, is one of the best teams in the country. I mean, they're number one in the country in defensive rebounding. They're in the top 20 in terms of defensive field goal percentage and also three-point percentage defense. So they do a great job of guarding you. They do a great job of guarding the three-point line. But, Bill, what really impressed me about them on the defensive end was even when they do make a mistake, they still have shot blockers on the back line to clean things up. Why, yes, to the huge block against the Drew Freiburg drive late in the game. Jordan Bruner had two blocks. Jalen Gabadon with a block. I mean, when you play perfectly in terms of your execution and your scouting report, and then even on the rare occasion when you do mess up, you get back to order, you get beat off the dribble. The ability to block shots is so key for them. And on the offensive end, man, did they look strong. And it was all Jordan Bruner. I mean, he's the cog in the middle. The guy passes up so many shots so we can get other guys involved. And I was talking to Paul Atkinson before the game, and he said, there just couldn't be a better guy to play with than Jordan Bruner. He's always looking for me. And then he caught himself, and he said, well, actually, he's looking for everybody. And Jordan Bruner, the way he was able to involve Azar Swain and and get him going, Azar Swain's amazing, Bill. I mean, you've seen him live, right? Yep. Yeah, we, I mean, I think we got to keep really talking about him even more. We we talked about him last week about just that amazing second half he's had. But, uh, I mean, he was so efficient throughout the entirety of that game Friday night. 23 points on, on only 14 shots, 10 of 14 shooting. Yeah, when you're that good of a shooter, I think what gets lost in the in the shuffle when you're that good of a shooter is how much time he lives in the gym. You know, he he spends so much time not only on practice days but on game days with his pregame ritual, getting up a ton of shots, 
you know, people say, wow, what a talented three-point shooter. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you're born as a three-point shooter. Everything he's gotten, he has worked for. He's put the time in the gym. And even if you think you're close enough to stop him from shooting the basketball, you're not close enough. You need to get, you know, in his shorts, next to him, chest to chest, because he'll just drill it in your face. And I was stunned. I mean, I have to say for a first-place matchup, I was shocked at how great Yale played and Coach Henderson didn't hold any punches after the game and said, you know, Yale basically looked like the Lakers tonight at Jadwin. Coming into this year, we had legitimate questions about who was going to handle a lot of the scoring load for Yale when they lost guys like Mieoni, Copeland, uh, some other depth scorers. And on top of, you know, Atkinson and Swain and a guy who moves the ball as well as Jordan Bruner, I don't know if we knew they would be as deep as they are. Five different players scored at least 12 points in that game. They have so many different options coming off the bench or in the starting lineup. And I think a lot of that does go back to the ball movement you talked about because I think all year we were saying arguably they move the ball better than any team in the Ivy League. I think at this point it's easy to say that they do move the ball better than any other team in the Ivy League. Yeah, and when you graduate Alex Copeland and you graduate an NBA player in Mie Oni, Coach Jones sat down with Eric Monroe and said, how are we going to replace these assists? Forget about the steals, the shot blocks, the explosive dunks that Mieoni brought. An underrated part of his game was his passing. And Eric Monroe has stepped up. He's been the floor general. And between Eric Monroe and Jordan Bruner, you've got two guys who are really pass-first oriented. And when you combine that with the outside shooting of Azar Swain, the inside play of Paul Atkinson, and then some of the other shooters, Cotton, Gabadon, and then a guy who's really going to be a special shooter for them down the line uh, in Michael Feinberg, I, I think that the, the sky's the limit for this team. And talking to Coach Jones, he said, listen, I knew coming into the season we could compete and win an Ivy League championship. I didn't know if we could win an NCAA tournament game. Now he's confident they can win this league, they can win the tournament, and then get a win in the in the big dance. But as we've talked about, as good as they look down Friday night, in the Ivy League, especially this year, there are so many good teams and there have been these crazy ebbs and flows. And on Saturday, they ran into some, some tough sledding at the Palestra. They lost 69-61 to Penn as the Quakers bounced back from a Friday night loss. And they really just had a hard time getting any of that traction on offense after shooting 57% on Friday. They shot just 36% as a team on Saturday. Penn did a particularly good job on Azar Swain, uh, holding him to just 13 points on 18 shots. Not many teams have been able to slow Azar Swain down. What did you think the Quakers did that, that made life more difficult on Swain? Well, you use the right word, Bill. You you have to make it difficult. You have to get – he had you know nine three-point shot attempts, but how many of them were contested or were made a little bit tougher? So you have to give credit to the Penn defense for making it tough. But Jordan Bruner was a different man Friday night compared to Saturday night. And you know we don't want to get too much into his health but I know he was extremely limited this week in practice. And the fact that he was basically dragging that leg around, you know, def in my mind, definitely not a hundred percent. And he played that well against Princeton. I think that's when you see the, the toll of a back to back. I mean, a guy who barely practiced all week and played that well, just didn't have that same level of dominance against the Penn Quakers. And you got to give Penn a ton of credit. AJ Broder, another guy in the conversation for Ivy league player of the year, 19, eight and five, four steals, three blocks. I mean, there are guys who play their whole lives and never have a stat line, whether it's men's league, whether it's the Ivy League, and never achieve that. We know how much we love A.J. Broder on this podcast, but you just can't say enough about his versatility. He's, he's the ultimate Swiss Army knife. 
but it's just another day that ends in Y for Bro. Everybody puts up a stat line like that. I mean, it's that it's you expect that. I think, you know, you got what you expect, albeit amazing play again from AJ Broder. To me, the big X factor for Penn in that game was Eddie Scott coming in, scoring 18 points, six of seven shooting, making really efficient use of his minutes. And in a game where, you know, points weren't really coming easy on either side, the spark that he gave Penn really seemed to, to get that offense going and, and turn the game in their favor. Yeah, without a doubt. And, you know, I've seen the maturation of Max Martz over the last couple of weeks as well. Not only being a great three-point shooter, which he was all season, but finding a way to score from two-point range. Devin Goodman, always solid for them. And then Jordan Dingle just does so much for your team. Just just being a threat, even when he doesn't score that much, his presence will stretch out the help and will open it up for other guys. All right, now let's talk about the other team that took that same road trip and also went one for one, and, or one and one, excuse me, and it was Brown. Uh, Bears start Friday night with a big win over Penn. They they controlled the second half. They were down six at halftime. They outscored Penn 46-28 in the second half to win going away, 75-63. And the uh, number one story for the Bears was you saw everything that Brandon Anderson can do in that game. He scored 31 points. He had nine rebounds. He distributed the ball as well. That was a big moment game for him to carry Brown to the victory in the Palestra. Yeah, and remember, Brandon Anderson has had ups and downs throughout his career. And he's a guy that, you know, Coach Martin has worked with kind of how to pick his spots. And what I was really impressed with about Brandon Anderson down at the palestra was picking his spots, knowing when to put his foot on the gas and knowing when to be a game manager. He came up the court a couple of times, bang, pulled up jumper from two, got into the paint twice for finishes, pulled up for three. That was a huge shot in the second half. And I've just been impressed with his ability to score, but also to know when to score and be that type of player and then Zach Hunsaker, when he makes shots, they're they're a totally different team. 21 points. He's been able to get to that right-handed pull-up jump shot right around the top of the key and mix that in with the three-point shots. He was excellent as well. Yeah, we may have said it before, but it, it seems pretty clear at this point that Brown is going to go as far as Hunsaker goes. He's, he's the X factor for them, is that uh, extra score to, to give them more diversity after Anderson and Tomineng Cho. And honestly, you know, Tomineng Cho did all the extra things that he does this week, but he didn't score that much. So for Brown to win on Friday night, it was because Hunsaker's scoring added up for uh, uh, the points that you often get from Cho, and he, he wasn't shooting it all that well on Friday. The other thing Brown did really well on Friday, and as we move to talk about Saturday, didn't do all that well that made a big difference was take care of the basketball Friday night, only 10 turnovers, but that segues us right into Saturday where they really struggled against Princeton in a 73 54 loss. And right off the bat, they gave it away seven more times. They made 17 turnovers and didn't shoot it well at all against the Tigers. Yeah. And you know, just one quick point to go back to the Penn game was that Jalen Ganey, I mean, 12 rebounds. And when he plays like the big man that he's capable of playing, it's a different look for Brown because that lets Tom and Ang Cho be more of that stretch four man where he can get rebounds. He can push on the break. Jalen Ganey was huge against Penn in the Palestra. And then the next night was still good, but wasn't that huge force that he was against the Quakers. And Tom and Cho is another guy who's so versatile four assists, eight points, eight rebounds against Princeton. But the star of that game, Bill was Ethan Wright and 21 points. He's emerged as their defensive stopper. He had four assists and four rebounds. I mean, he's a guy nine for 10 from the field and a guy that has just realized how good he is. That was a 24-minute performance. And when you consider how athletic he is, what a great shooter he is. And 
emerging as a star. I mean, he is a guy who I, I do not think has scratched the surface of his potential. And that was a huge game for Princeton, just in terms of mojo, when you think about it, too. Uh, bouncing back from a game where they didn't look good on Friday night, playing well against a Brown team that had won five in a row coming in. Uh, you know, you mentioned what Wright did. They got 15 from Llewellyn and Schwieger as well. But on top of that, to me, it was just a much better effort on defense. It seems like whatever, you know, Mitch Henderson and the staff may have said between Friday and Saturday, they, they locked back in and they came out with a really energetic concerted effort in that game as well. Yeah. And, and you, you have to look at the matchups too. And when you look at the matchup of Princeton or anyone against Yale, you're going against two true big men. I mean, Paul Atkins is six ten, Jordan Bruner is six nine six ten. How do you match up with two big guys? Right? So when you only have truly one big Jalen Ganey for Brown, that lets Richmond and Reaver Guzzo match up with him. And you just kind of can have situations where you have advantages and the fact that Ryan Schwieger didn't shoot the ball that well, but was still able to get others involved. That's when you need guys like Llewellyn and Richmond and Riverguzzo to step up. All right. So Brown, Princeton, Harvard, excuse me, Brown, Princeton, Penn, and Yale all go one and one in the, the four games against each other. So all four of those teams still stay in the, the top of that bunched Ivy league. The other team that's in the conversation now five and three after two wins this weekend is Harvard. You know, they had that heartbreaking loss to Brown. They had the three losses by a total of five points. Uh, they did what they needed to do this weekend. They, they uh, handled business against Cornell, jumping out to a 42-15 lead en route to an 85-63 win. Uh, but the big game for, for Harvard was Saturday night against Columbia. You think about how the Crimson have struggled to close out close games this year. But they got it done after Mike Smith had sent the game to overtime with a basket in the final 30 seconds. Uh, first overtime, Christian Juzang ties it with 10 seconds left. Second overtime, Noah Kirkwood puts Harvard ahead for good with a minute 12 to go, and they make enough free throws down the stretch, hang on, win 77-73, and, and defend home court to get to 5-3 and three in Ivy play. Yeah, I mean, 38 points. It's just an unbelievable effort. It's an unbelievable explosion of offense. And Mike Smith showing you why he's so highly regarded, not only around the Ivy League, but around the country. And he's tough to deal with. And you got to give Coach Jim Angles a ton of credit for the way that he uses him and doesn't just let him go up and go pick and roll. He'll use him off curl screens at the mid post, get him on the move and get him in situations where he can score. But Noah Kirkwood, again, showing his versatility, 22 and 10. And really, you know, I think of him as a point forward. I mean, he's in that. Scotty Pippen mold. He's in that LeBron mold where he can bring it up. He can run offense and he pretty much went the distance playing 50 minutes as well. Yeah. And Chris Lewis, 16 and 11 and a great advertisement for salad because he went a couple years ago, a uh, meat free because he wanted to get fitter. He goes, he goes 44 minutes uh, at his size, impressive effort from him as well. And, you know, Harvard really won this game inside despite how well Mike Smith played. The Crimson were plus 14 on the glass, and, and that made up for the fact that they didn't shoot it well from three. They took 43 three-pointers. They only made eight. Uh, that's 18% for those that aren't that mathematically inclined, yet they still won this game. And I think, you know, to me, this maybe is the most important game of the year for them so far because, you know, despite how well Mike Smith played, Columbia came into that game at one in six. It was on Harvard's home court, uh, and the Crimson with no margin for error after those early close losses. If they drop that one, you know, they're out of the playoff picture. They still have work that they really need to do. Here they hold on, they win a close game, and now they're right in the thick of the race at five and three, tied with Penn and Brown, just one game back of, of Yale and Princeton. Right. And when you play so many close games like the way Harvard has, 
Think about what their kind of muscle memory, what their emotional bank is in terms of being in tight situations. They're going to be comfortable in Ivy Madness if they get in. You know, they're going to be the team that's like, okay, we've been here before. One point games, double overtime. It doesn't matter. They know how to kind of play calm and play poised and manage the game late when they get in tight situations. All right, so that leads us to this weekend with the Ivy so bunched. Yellen, Princeton, 6-2, and two, Harvard, Penn, and Brown, 5-3. and three. Harvard's the only team left that has a game against every one of those other teams that they're tied with. They still have one against Yellen, Princeton, one against Penn and Brown. Uh, Penn no longer plays Princeton. They've played their two. Brown has played its two against Yale. So that's why Harvard's the only team that flat out controls its destiny if it wins all of the head-to-heads against everybody else in the picture they have in front of them, they would win the Ivy League. And uh, they get their first shot at that, hosting Princeton and Penn this weekend. Uh, remember, two of the best games of the season when Harvard lost to Penn in overtime and to Princeton by one earlier uh, this season. We just talked about how many close games Harvard's played. How do they turn those close losses into uh, close wins at home? You know, at, at home, you tend to shoot the ball a little bit better. You know, they weren't great from three against Columbia. They only shot eight for 43. Uh, so that maybe it's an understatement that weren't great, <laughs> but you tend to shoot the ball a little bit better at home. They didn't make free throws against Columbia, 13 for 23. So expect the margin of error to be a lot tighter against Princeton, but you just get excited about all the great matchups, right? Chris Lewis gets to go against Richmond and Riviguzo. I love Noah Kirkwood against Ryan Schwieger, two six seven guys who can really handle, can score from outside, can shoot threes. And then the guard matchups, whether it's Justin Bassey and Chris Juzang against Jail Newellen, as well as Ethan Wright, who I just think his confidence is soaring right now. And you can do it at home. All right, now as a sophomore, can you go on the road and have a huge game on the defensive end and then get to the bucket and hit threes on the offensive end? And then Saturday, you get a couple of those great matchups when Harvard plays Penn. You get Lewis against... Uh, against A.J. Broder inside. you got to say, for centers, there's no bigger test in the Ivy League than going back-to-back against Princeton and Penn because you get both the Riri Guzzo and Broder. I, I know that, obviously, Jordan Bruner, Paul Atkinson are great inside for Yale, but to have Riri Guzzo and Broder back-to-back, that is a huge weekend for a guy like Chris Lewis. So my, my two thoughts about this are, one, the Ivy League right now in terms of centers, it reminds me of the NBA in the 90s. Okay, so you take your pick. You go, you got Olajuwon, you've got Shaq, you've got David Robinson, you've got Tim Duncan, you've got Patrick Ewing. Okay, who are you going to take? They're all phenomenal. And that's the type of big man situation you have in the Ivy League. And with Chris Lewis, you go, he's licking his chops because he loves the challenge. You got Richmond and Riri Guzzo. And when those two guys played the first time, Bill, I think they both looked at each other like, wait a second, this is the only guy I'm not stronger than. I got to go deeper in my bag. I got to figure out a way to hit hook shots. I got to try a little harder to get position. And then AJ Broder has another dynamic where he plays a little bit more on the outside, a little bit more on the mid post driving the basketball, but it's just an exciting time to watch the post. And if you look at these guys, I think they've taken like a combined 50 something threes. And most of them are AJ Broder. I mean, Chris Lewis and Richmond and Guzzo, I think I've taken zero or one combined threes. So it's truly in an era of shoot the three and advanced analytics. 
these guys are old school. Yeah, and I, th- I think we do uh, one quick mention on the uh, second part of that back-to-back for Princeton and Penn. I always say that's one of the tougher trips in the Ivy just in terms of travel to have to go the nearly three hours from Cambridge up to Hanover after the game. Uh, and Dartmouth is coming in off back-to-back wins, including their their best win of the season in Ivy play. They beat Cornell by 22 on Saturday night. So uh, they'll hope to be catching Penn on Friday, looking ahead to Harvard and hope to take a Princeton team that's likely gone through a grinder on, on Friday and, and uh, see if they can spice things up as well. Because Noah, as you know, uh, there are no safe games in the Ivy league. Just look at that Columbia Harvard game last week. Yeah. And Chris Knight is a formidable force in the post as well. Aaron Rye is more of a stretch four. he can really shoot it. He can really pass. They run a lot of offense through him and David McLaughlin. He's a heck of a coach. I mean, he really knows the game. He knows basketball. He puts him in situations to be successful. So as much as it's the travel and it's going up to Dartmouth, it's those guys who make it really tough. Ian Cicero can really shoot it. Uh, Torres Samuels has had some big games this season as well from behind the arc. And, you know, it's almost like when the league is this good, some people have to lose games, unfortunately. And it's, it's, it's just tough top to bottom. You cannot count out Dartmouth and the Big Green. Again, five teams within one game of first place with only three weekends to go. It is going to be an awesome sprint to the finish with just four spots left in Ivy Madness and those five teams all within one game. Uh, Some important ones coming up this week starting on Friday night. You can catch all the coverage in the Ivy League on ESPN. Noah and I will be back next week to break everything down from this weekend. Megan Perry back with me, Bill Spaulding, as we uh, dive into the women's basketball picture in the Ivy League. And uh, the story of the entire season has been Princeton's dominance. They're now 7-0 in league play as they keep stifling teams on defense. They beat Yale 55-39 and then crush Brown 85-48. Let's talk about that win against Yale. That solidified first place for Princeton. And uh, to me, slowing down Yale, holding them to 39 points, is just another feather in the cap for how good on defense this Tiger team is. I think you make a really good point because, to tell you the truth, I have to give Yale some credit. They slowed Princeton down. Princeton's only able to score about 55 points. and That's pretty low um, for what they've been putting up lately. Uh, but to tell you the truth, you know, when your offense is not clicking, championship teams are able to um, get it done with their defense, and Princeton proved that they were able to do that against what has been a really hot uh, and a very strong, dynamic, well-balanced Yale team. Yeah, you mentioned it was not Princeton's best night on offense, but that's the advantage of having a defense that's as dominant as they are. They can absorb a night on offense where they shoot only 36%. They make only two three-pointers. And a rare night in Ivy League play where Bella Allery wasn't even in double figures. Uh, On top of the defense, and and really it's an addition to the defense, part of the reason that they keep teams so low scoring is Princeton just dominates the glass. I mean, you don't get second chances against the Tigers. That was uh, no different on Friday night when Princeton out-rebounded Yale 50 to 26. Yeah, I mean, what's really tough, I mean, as you try to prepare each week for your opponent, when you see Princeton coming up on your schedule, you think, okay, if we hold Bella Allery, you know, below her average, and if we're able to maybe keep this team from scoring, slow down the pace, keep them under 60 points, and we've got a solid shot at winning, um, Actually, no. (laughs) You know, this team is that deep. And that's a discouraging part because this team has depth. This team has more than one way that they can beat you. They just prove that they don't have to shoot threes like crazy. They don't have to run and gun like they have other options and they can play multiple styles of basketball and still come out with a W. So, you know, not much to say other than well done. I thought Yale competed well and Princeton just continues to do what Princeton does. The next night, you get the feeling that that Carla Baruby and her staff had 
you know, lit into their team a bit about being more efficient on offense because Princeton came out the next night and they just blitzed Brown. They led 24-4 after the first quarter. They were up 33 at halftime, ended up winning 85-48 and just shot almost flawlessly, particularly in that first half, shot 52% in the game. Yikes. I mean, it's it's tough. You look at the score and it's a nasty score and I'm not really sure uh, what to take from it. I think about Brown, um, I think the takeaway for them is that, hey, they can compete, but you have to be able to do so from the jump, from tip. You cannot allow Princeton to get out to a 24 to 4 margin. I mean, that's a hole you're not going to be able to dig yourself out of. But for Princeton, what I appreciate, it's kind of like when I watch Princeton play, sometimes I think of USA basketball, and go with me here on this analogy, I think of the way USA basketball competes against um, some of their other competition, and the score could be 80 to 40, right? But they're still continuing to play at a high level. They're not playing the score, they're playing to get better um, and competing with amongst themselves against themselves. So um, I just think the way that Princeton is completing competing, they are competing like champions um, regardless of the score. They continue to execute at such a high level. And I think round of applause for, for coach Baruby and what she's able to do to continue to push her team um, to, to play elite basketball. Yeah. I was saying she inherited it like a sports car. She inherited the team that was very good. Uh, she's kept all those sports car traits, but also turned them into a muscle car with how physical and tough to move they are on the inside. I mean, again, they were plus 26 on the glass against Brown. So for the weekend, they averaged out rebounding their two opponents by 25 rebounds a game. That is just like a silly number. It is. And you know what, Bill, even more than that, it's rebounding is an, an effort stat, right? So it's a, yeah, it's a little bit of positioning. You can, you can argue that maybe there's some technicality to it, but mostly it's about effort. And so I think, especially when you have a team that's up by like large margins, it's kind of tough to get your team to continue to be motivated to make the effort. And the fact that the, Princeton is rebounding the way that they are and the margin that exists can tell, tells you that coach Baruby, she's doing an excellent job of keeping her team and staff motivated, um, which is something that she deserves a lot of credit for. Yes, the car is shiny. It's already nice, but um, you have to work with that. And she continues to push um, and get, you know, high quality results weekend after weekend. All right, let's talk Penn now. I think maybe uh, the uh, reports of their demise early in this season were uh, coming a little bit early because uh Remember, they had to play Princeton in the first two games of the year. So they dropped their first two Ivy League games. Since then, they've rattled off five in a row, capped it in a, a really good 53-51 win over Yale. That was a great game. Penn came from four down in the fourth, uh, and they got back to the Penn basketball that we know and expect. They played great defense. They forced a lot of turnovers took care of the basketball on the other end and uh, and rebounded well. Yeah, I have to tell you, I, I might be guilty as charged. You talked about people that maybe uh, expressed some concern about Penn too early. I'll raise my hand and say, yeah, that was me. But listen, uh, th- this team has responded and they are surging. They, I think they're on a five-game win streak. At this five straight, point. five so, and two overall. Yep. Yeah, this this. I guess the real Penn women's basketball team has showed up at this point in time and their style of play. I think they're sticking true to that. This, this win over Yale was a gritty win uh, over the weekend, you know, coming back from being down in the fourth quarter um, and doing it with defense, forcing turnovers and low shooting percentages. That's Yale. I mean, excuse me, that's Penn basketball. Um, And it's exciting to see them um, be able to convert the, these efforts and energies into wins. You know, the other thing that I think has been really key for Penn during this win streak is they're starting to have a lot of different scoring options step up. Early in the season, early in Ivy play, freshman Caleb Padilla was playing awesome, but they weren't getting the scoring they expected from some of their other players. Now you look over the past couple of weeks, there's been 
games where Leah Parker has been great uh, on Saturday night against Yale. It was Phoebe Sturba. She scored 16 to lead the Quakers. Yeah. You make an excellent point because before we talked about Penn, we were talk about the inside game, right? It was like Leah Parker's their anchor. It has to go through her. Then it was like, okay, on the perimeter, who's going to be your girl. It's, you know, Kayla Padilla. She showed up big. Um, but now look, you're right. Phoebe Sturba like is able to show that she's can kind of carry the offensive load as well. So I think things are falling into place at the right time um, for coach Mike McLaughlin's team as they head closer and closer to March. Now, if you're Yale, you've lost three of four, including two in a row on what is honestly the toughest road trip in Ivy women's basketball year in, year out, having to play at Penn and at Princeton, just because of how good those teams have been, but still three losses last four after that uh, uh, early four and zero start in league play. Uh, outside of the Princeton game, all the losses have been close. What little tweaks can they make to clean things up and solidify their positioning over the final six games of conference play? Yeah, you know, gosh, that's a tough question. And, and um, I will say that, one, let me just start with, Bill. I think that Yale has to be encouraged. Um, and what can motivate them is knowing that, hey, guys, we were in a similar position last year. And, like, now let's learn from it. Let's get the job done. They are still primed um, to be able to, you know, make their way to Ivy Madness, right? Currently positioned at five and three in the league, like tied uh, with Harvard. I think that Yale has to continue to commit to the rebounding. I think when they are aggressive on the glass, when they go inside um, and they are able to establish their interior, that just makes the job easier uh, for Roxy Berriman um, and company to be able to take over on the outside. So being able to commit to rebounding on the inside, I think it's just going to continue to make their job easier on the perimeter. Uh, and that's where I think Yale really thrives. When you can get Roxy Berriman in her flow and you have balance um, with that offensive attack. Yale plays Cornell in Columbia this week. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Let's talk about those Columbia Lions because they have inserted themselves right back into the race for Ivy Madness as they uh, picked up a couple big wins over the weekend, including beating Harvard on Saturday, 89-64. Lions blitzed the Crimson with 28 second-quarter points to lead by 26 at halftime. Ended up rolling from there, and all of a sudden, they're 4-4 four and four in league playing just one game behind the Yale and Harvard for that final Ivy Madness spot. Yeah, I have to tell you, I was... I was I want to say shocked, but I'll use the word I was impressed when I saw this Harvard uh, Columbia score. And um, it's not because I don't know what Columbia is capable of, but it's that the growth in Columbia is that they are able to do this repeatedly, right? Like they, in the past, it's been like, oh, okay, Columbia had a really great night, you know, on Friday, but then they didn't play so well on Saturday. Or it was an excellent performance, but that's probably the best they can play. No. Uh, not at all. That's not the case this season. Like Coach Griffin has these girls playing outstanding basketball and consistently for them to be able to come in um, and and be able to shoot, you know, 57% from the field and 13, I think, with 29 from three. That's outstanding numbers. The consistency is there. And that tells me that this team is at another level. They have multiple, player, multiple players contributing um, on the offensive end, uh, multiple threats. And it's not just random it's night in and night out um and this columbia team i'm telling you they are they are primed they are positioning themselves for a run into ivy madness and i would not be surprised um if we saw them uh in, with that fourth or third third spot going into ivy madness they're playing well and you're right the, the consistency is so key for this columbia team because they, they've gotten so much better game to game and they may be as deep on offense as any team in the league. I mean, Abby Shue scored 31. She's becoming a regular 20-plus point producer. She had six threes in that game. Sienna Durr added 20. She's a player who can consistently score 20 or more when she's playing well. 
and Hartford had been really good on defense this year outside of Princeton, maybe the toughest team physically on the inside, but uh, they had no answer for Columbia in the course of that game. Yeah. I mean, Abby Shue shooting the lights out six threes. I mean, gosh, that's like, that's Curry. Like, I mean, it's almost unconscious what she's doing, but then you add like Sienna Durr to have 20. I mean, my goodness, uh, this, Columbia team is explosive. And so I think Coach Megan Griffin has found the right combinations. And I don't know what you do with that. If her team continues to play like that, they are going to be a tough out. So um, I'm really impressed with the Columbia Lions play. Uh, I don't want to call them a sleeper team, but I'm going to call them the team that not everyone picked. um, and, And they're surging and watch out for them. They're a definite threat. So after another wild weekend at Ivy play, Princeton stands alone 7-0. They lead the Ivy League. They're in great position to win the Ivy Championship. Penn in second, half game up on Yale and Harvard at five and two. Then it's Yale and Harvard both at five and three. Columbia four and four, right in it, just one game out of a third or fourth place position. Cornell, Dartmouth, Brown all have work to do. Cornell two and six, Dartmouth two and six, and Brown one and seven. Let's highlight a couple big games this week. Let's start with one that I have my eye on for Saturday, Yale-Columbia. Uh, Bulldogs won 85 to 60 the first time these teams played, but I mean, we just talked about it. Columbia's playing so much better basketball right now. They are. I mean, it could be a shootout. Who knows? I mean, we. I think both of these teams are fun to watch on offense. Um, we, we talked about the balance that both of them have. And so really the question is, we know you can score, but this game is going to be out who, be about who can defend, I think. Um, it's going to come down to who's committing to, you know, taking care of the ball um, and who's going to be able to force those turnovers on the other team. It's going to be a defensive battle, uh, I bet. And I anticipate a really close margin. I, I don't see this one getting out of control on either end. These teams are are pretty well matched, I, I believe. And then it's Harvard. They're uh, playing at Princeton, at Penn. Tough weekend, as always. Uh, let's really focus in on that game against Penn at the Palestra on Saturday. Harvard beat Penn 58-51 back in January. That handed Penn its second loss after they lost the opener to Princeton early on in the year. And what they did that really no one else has been able to do this year is they really limited Kayla Padilla. They held her to just 6 of 25 from the floor in that game. I'm glad you brought the reminder up because I kind of have forgotten about that. And, like, that matters for sure. Um, I think mentally, right, as we go into this game, I think um, Harvard, who kind of had a difficult weekend last weekend, knowing that they can carry that confidence into the palestra of the the fact that they beat them the first time around um, will go a long way. Um, but to tell you the truth, like this pin team and what Kayla Padilla has shown that she can do, I doubt she'll go six for 25 again. Um, I definitely think she'll rebound. I think, think she'll bounce back and have another really impressive offensive performance. But um, listen, who knows? It's also a great matchup, matchup of coaches. You know, Coach Michael Laughlin, he's positioned his team well. And Kathy Delaney-Smith, you know, the longest tenured coach in the Ivy League, the winningest coach, uh, she's always got something. Uh, up her sleeve. So I'm interested to see what's happening on the sidelines, what the adjustments will be. It's a great matchup of coaches and a great matchup of players on the interior. If you remember back to that Penn-Harvard game earlier this year, Harvard basically took Penn's style of play to Penn. Harvard was better on defense. They were better on the glass. And Jeannie Bame was just dominant on the inside. She had 16 rebounds in that game. Well, she's going to have to have a similar effort again. I mean, her team needs that um, consistency from her. She's going to have to anchor the inside. But even more than her rebounding, it's going to be her defense. She's got to battle Aaliyah Parker uh, in the post. And so I think maybe who comes out on top, <laughs> excuse me, inside, whoever wins the battle of the bigs might be the, the team that comes out with the win. All right. Well, we're uh, looking forward to this weekend. going to be a whole lot of fun and uh should go a long way in determining the four teams we see in Cambridge at the end of the year for Ivy Madness and uh, could go a long way in moving Princeton even closer to claiming the Ivy Championship in course of the regular season 
as well. All right, when we come back, Noel will jump back in with us and we'll uh, talk about what you should be talking about at the water cooler. That's as we continue here on the road to Ivy Madness. All right, winding things down here on the road to Ivy Madness. Uh, Noah back in along with me, Bill Spalding, and Megan Perry as we uh, head toward what you should be talking about this week at the water cooler. And and there's so much to talk about. For me, I'm going to talk about uh, how close it is on the men's side right now. Six games left on the men's side. It is so tight. And here's who controls their own destiny. So Harvard plays every other team in the race at least once. So the Crimson control their destiny. If they win out, they will be at Ivy Madness. Princeton and Yale tied for first. So obviously they control their own destiny. If they win out, they'll be in. Brown and Penn play once more on 229. That might be the key game because neither the Bears nor Penn necessarily control their own destiny. But again, with six games left, if you win out, you're probably in very good shape to get one of those four spots to make Ivy Madness and even to win the Ivy Championship as well. Noah, your water cooler topic? You know what? I, I want to go back to talking about individual accolades again and kind of the, the second race. There's three races here, Bill. There's for first place and the Ivy League Championship. There's the road to Ivy Madness, the top four. And then an interesting race to me is the Ivy League Player of the Year. And if Yale wins the league, I believe somebody who's wearing the blue and white should be Ivy League Player of the Year. And having seen Azar Sween in person, if he continues on the tear he's on, I think he could be Ivy League Player of the Year. As great as Paul Atkinson has been, as great as Jordan Bruner has been, and Coach Jones told me that there is debate among the coaching staff of who their best player is because Jordan Bruner does so much for their team. But I think the Ivy League Player of the Year should be the best player from the best team, not the best statistical season. But that's something you can bring up at the water cooler and say, wait a second, we probably have 10 to 15 players who are good enough to be Ivy League first teamers. And we probably have five to seven guys who could be Ivy League Player of the Year. And Megan, bring us home with your water cooler topic. Well, my water cooler topic this week, I'm going to say welcome back, Princeton. They have recently reemerged into the AP Top 25. This team has been incredible. Yes, I mean, you know I've been like shouting to the rafters about this, but Princeton, they're 19-1 and overall. They're on a 15-game winning streak, and their only loss is in overtime on the road to number 19, Iowa. This Princeton team is legit, and I'm just really happy that some of the national media landscape is starting to pay attention and give them credit where it's due. So shout out to Princeton. Welcome back to the AP Top 25. Yeah, I think we were banging our head against the wall for weeks there to get them into the Top 25. And finally, the, the voters have listened. It's going to be a lot of fun to see how Princeton fares down the stretch and headed toward the NCAA tournament as well. Well, that wraps up this weekend's episode of The Road to Ivy Madness. We'll be back next week to break down everything this weekend and really dive into the playoff pictures. We'll be closing down the final couple of weeks of Ivy Hoop season. For Noah Savage, Megan Perry, Bill Spaulding saying so long and enjoy your Ivy Hoops this weekend.